This New America NYC event took place on October 14, 2015, and is titled Breaking News, Disrupting the Status Quo in Storytelling, in collaboration with The Ground Truth Project, and features Adam B. Ellick, Hilary Frey, Tremaine Lee, Louise Rogue, and Charles M. Sennett. start with with Adam Ellick, who is a colleague, someone who uh, I've known for quite a few years and gotten to know both in the field and back here. Um, Adam's uh, an amazing journalist who can do both video and writing, who has this skill set across platforms that I find very unique. We often tell young journalists, get one craft, you know, really work on one thing. Don't try to do everything, but there are rare exceptions who can actually work across the platforms. Adam is one of those. Um, recently pulled up stakes from Europe where he was international senior video correspondent for the New York Times. Um, he's now come here a couple months ago, right? And really taken on a leadership role uh, in video at the New York Times as they think through how they're gonna use video. So we're getting him in a ferment of creativity right now on how to use video in the New York Times. Um, and he is deputy editor uh, of video. So. Adam's going to speak for a moment, and this is the rhythm we're going to get. He's going to talk a little bit about his work, and he's going to use that to introduce, uh, in his case, a screen grab of a digital product. But I'm going to say, try to keep it to two minutes, and we'll go through each one of these. So can we do that? We can, very easily. <laughs> okay. Um, is this working? Uh, and if you have your phones, I think you can probably find this uh, by searching... California drought fire, New York Times. Well, it's here on okay. the screen. We um, can show through. It is mobile friendly, uh, which is why I'm sharing it. Half of our uh, users come to us um, exclusively on mobile. And there's sort of two things that historically we do quite well that are sort of our incumbent traditional legacy product. One of those is a 900 word text story. And the other one is the big heave, the snowfall, sort of, you know, 10 editors from different departments sitting around a room for six weeks getting something perfect. Um, neither of those are ideal for mobile first and for uh, breaking news. So one of the things that we're trying to do is scale this, um, what I think is a quite organic and seamless blend of text graphics, video, and photos. And it's really story first, more than any medium first. Um, and um, it's scrollable, readable, watchable, viewable, whatever. And um, you know, the question becomes, I mean, it's a cultural challenge in a place that is um, so loyal to old models that have worked really well for decades, if not longer, in terms of story and big heave. Um, how do you do this quickly um, on a breaking story and still produce something that is elegant, um, cohesive, and not just a splattering of tweets and graphics and things that require clicks and you lose your place in the story and don't really know what has happened three minutes later? Um, so this is our attempt at that. Um, and it's happening faster and faster every day. And it's getting better and better. It's, it's still not the, um, the fastest muscle in the newsroom. But it's becoming, um, I think we're becoming a lot more responsive in, in producing this stuff. 
Um, and there's a, a handful of sort of, you know, quick projects that we produced recently that are in this mold. Another one, if you want to look it up later, is uh, Cathedral Restoration. Um, and another is a Justin Bieber video we did, which um, is uh, the intersection of text graphics and journalism. And you can actually watch and see how they make music. And it's the first vertical, video, vertical video experience that we produced. And um, as someone who's tone deaf, it was sort of like the first time I was a- able to hear music. Um, so it, it was it was pretty cool. So this is um, this is what we're up to. Yeah, Adam, you definitely hear the music. I, I think the the integration of of the written word and visual images is something in this. It's so simple. I mean, it looks easy. But we've all been experimenting with this, and I think the New York Times is really starting to find uh, the rhythm for that. So thanks. Um, so Hillary Frey is our next uh, panelist who will be talking about her work. But we were just talking um, in one of the rooms back here with Hillary about her journey. It's an ama- amazing how many places she has worked and been on the cutting edge all along the way. A couple uh, that I'll mention are she was editor-in-chief at Yahoo!, uh, she was editorial director at NBCnews.com um, and is now um, director of global news operations at Fusion. Um, and I've had a, a good chance to work uh, with Hillary, as has Kevin, as a, as a partner in different, different projects. And I think partnerships are something we're all experimenting with. Sometimes we all feel like groaning at this idea of partnering because it gets tedious. But sometimes you have a partner who's just a great journalist and who you really feel like you can connect with. And we always had that with Hillary. So she's going to introduce uh, her clip and talk a little bit about the work she's doing. Sure. Um, so some people may not know what Fusion is, so I just want to explain it really quickly. Um, we're a joint venture of Univision and ABC News. And we started about two and a half years ago, really focused on a cable channel. Um, catering to young uh, Latino audiences, English-speaking audiences in the U.S. Um, I'm part of the digital build-out of that, and actually, like, digital has grown exponentially in the last year. And while we um, love our, what we call linear programming for broadcast, uh, we're very much um, trying to make it, make everything work across platforms. So it was one of the things, I worked with Tracy at NBC, and, um, you know, it's a, it, was a challenge being at a traditional broadcast organization trying to figure out how to make it work digitally also. Um, we're really like building things together at Fusion. And one of uh, my big projects there um, is overseeing all elections programming for Fusion. So that spans, I'm coordinating with TV. I run an elections unit here in New York that's doing all our booking and getting the candidates and all that kind of stuff. Um, but where we, um, and, you know, we have some cool story templates and all that stuff. It, you know, we're not really doing breaking news, and I, I'm not going to show some of that stuff um, to you guys because I think what we're really trying to do that feels the most different to me is come at um, news and, and stories with a different sort of conceptual approach. So when it came to elections, which um, I did oversee at Yahoo News in 2012, very different experience. Um, that was much more like competing with the Times and, and rewriting AP stories and, and um, building you know, a presence in Washington. We're not doing any of that. 
Um, in fact, we closed our Washington bureau because to cover an election, you don't need to be in Washington. Um, we're not covering candidates. We are establishing a slate of projects um, and really trying to create voices at Fusion with um, some of our young reporters uh, and, and give them the support to have a point of view and to really speak about the candidates and the issues and the positions from a point of passion. So, um, you know, one person I'll mention who I think Tremaine knows, Collier Meyerson, who was a producer at MSNBC, was one of my first hires at Fusion. She's got an amazing voice and just like a great perspective. And we just, her second day, I sent her to Baltimore, you know, like she, and she was down there reporting on everything going on. And we just sort of, you know, we're giving these young reporters very much in line with what Charlie's talking about, um, resources and platforms and editing to to say what they want to say and really like speak from their heart about the issues. So at the core of our elections projects um, is your next president, which um, was actually inspired by something we did at NBC called Dream Day that was really successful. It was a hashtag campaign. Um, we start, we just kicked this off. Um, we're going all around the country. We've talked to hundreds of uh, young people to find out what they care about most um, during this election season. We have a bunch of videos. You can, if you go to dearnextpresident.com, you can see everything we've done. Um, we've talked to a lot of celebrities and all that kind of stuff. Um, but what I want to show you is a little mini supercut we did about immigration um, for the Dear Next President project. And this was just, this was distributed both on the website via our Facebook page, Twitter, um, and most importantly, Jorge Ramos's uh, personal Facebook page, which is like the explosive fire hose for, for Fusion right now. Um, so it's our moment. Here you go. Dear next president. Dear next president. Dear next president, please do something about immigration. There are a lot of people crossing the border and having problems with their papers. Dear next president, I'd like you to take interest on immigrant students. Don't leave the Mexicans out. Please stop this ridiculous debate about birthright citizenship. I have a citizenship nowhere else, and I would be countryless. Dear next president. Dear next president. Dear next president, please do something about immigration. I'm worried about the resources here for our own citizens. I am not American, and I want to work in this country. Please make it easier for me to come here and work. Dear next president, give me a green card. <laughs> Um, so, did you want to close with anything? Are you good? Yeah. That's good. Okay. Um, <laughs> All right. Sorry, I should have said that instead. Right. Um, so, I, I want to introduce Tremaine Lee next. Um, Tremaine, we also got talking uh, before we came on stage in another uh, journalist with an amazing career um, and really sort of had that old school experience of covering police, uh, sort of doing cop reporting in Philly. Uh, where he is from, and is sadly an Eagles fan, um, and he's um, <laughs> he's uh, really truly adheres to something that I don't even know if it exists anymore. That idea that you go out and you get a job at a newspaper, you you kind of work hard, break stories, uh, and and it's it's a path that I followed, and I th I think you may be one of the last of of uh, the people to really have that opportunity, and I think it sets you up in unique ways, and he has used that experience as doing that kind of on-the-ground reporting um, throughout his career, including at the Times-Picayune, where he was part of the team that won the Pulitzer Prize for its coverage of Katrina. Um, he is now 
uh, national reporter for MSNBC. He's also an Emerson Fellow with the New America Foundation. And Tremaine's going to introduce a project he's doing with MSNBC, which I think is a fantastic project, but I don't want to steal his thunder. So. Um, as, as you kind of mentioned, I do sometimes feel like the old man in the room sometimes. Like well, I, I'm, I can take that <laughs> role now. <laughs> but back in the day, having one foot in that kind of, um, you know, you're running from the press conference, trying to get the, the photo of the victim from the family through the yearbook, getting back to the office to have something done by 6 o'clock because they actually have to print out, you know, real newspapers. Um, but I think it's a skill that I've carried along with me, and I try to impart in younger journalists but the way we've created the shell around them, it's easier and quicker just to aggregate it. You don't necessarily have to go and knock on that door and get through the emotions of seeing a mother or a father who just lost their son or daughter. That, that space between life and death and how we're living and bouncing around each other in between, that's where we grow and learn. And so for me here, um, after about a decade in uh, newspaper, traditional newspapers, to find myself at a television network where things move a little differently, one, we don't cover, um, for the, the, the dot-com side, we don't really necessarily cover breaking news. Um, and it's clear kind of that the TV agenda kind of is what fuels us. Um, but the folks who run the network are now being more intentional about how we nurture this ecosystem. And that the dot-com side is very important. But how do we also merge the way people experience the, the television and the programming and caring about the person who's delivering the news um, with the real reporting, with what we're able to do online. And so for me, about 50% of my time is now doing TV reporting. Whether it's in the field, in the Baltimore situation, or whether it's uh, talking about a story I wrote or a project I wrote, um, or kind of more as a panelist. Even though um, it's not 2007, 2008 anymore, so we can't rely on this kind of partisanship, so we're actually changing our entire model. So where for the first time now, we actually have breaking news reporters, such as myself, who something happens, you send us out there. Um, but in between all that, I, uh, the, the, the network understands how important it is to meet people where they are. And I think Ferguson and Baltimore in this crazy year we've had where there's fire and blood in the streets and it's been this back to back to back. Young people especially are you know, creating this movement born online. They're not waiting for us to tell them what's important to pull the sheets back. They're out there doing it for us. Um, but with that, um, I don't think we've seen a television network more committed to online projects uh, what I'm about to you know, show you guys now is a project called Geography of Poverty, where I teamed up with this really, really amazing, I can't speak his praises enough, this photographer out of Southern California named Matt Black. I mean, this guy is truly, I mean, there are a whole bunch of great photographers out there, but this guy is the truth. So basically, he went to 77 different cities all around the country, never crossing the poverty line. Everywhere he went, um, the, the population is either 20% or above of poverty. And so I descended in to different regions. So in the southwest region, we went to Brownsville along the Mexican border to speak to how immigration policy um, you know, impacts how people are living and dying in poverty there. Um, in the south, we went to uh, what they call Cancer Alley between uh, Baton Rouge and New Orleans, where in this 85-mile stretch, there are more than 115 refineries, and people are dying of mysterious causes. There are sores that won't heal. And all these old black communities are all clustered around refineries where plantations had been. Then we went um, to the kind of the Rust Belt area, went to Flint, Michigan, uh, where they had GM. And once that collapsed, you know, so did that vibrant middle class to address this kind of white poverty that we don't talk about much on the south side where heroin addiction. And I mean, it's just the kind of poverty that we don't like to talk about. It's easier to talk about this black welfare queen and black mother who's struggling with her kids. But this white community that's been struggling for a long time. 
And finally went to the, the Standing Rock Reservation, where if you've ever been in Indian country, the layers and layers of bureaucracy and red tape, you're talking about communities where there are 80% or more of unemployment, where life expectancy for men is like 59 years old. Suicide rates are off the, off the chain. And a couple of, uh, hours north, there's this oil boom. You know, they have the second lowest unemployment rate in the entire country, but these people are struggling. And so this was our opportunity not to be prescriptive, but to tell, again, these stories of people and how they're living and dying, but blending the reporting, blending Matt Black's photography, blending uh, the infographics and data visualization. But also on top of that, they were actually running commercials. And again, this was purely an online thing. They were actually using valuable commercial space. I mean, it, it was, they were playing it so much, I was almost embarrassed. Like... <laughs> There, there was it is. a point where you were you were wall to wall on MSNBC. It was a lot because it would be the geography of poverty. And then, I mean, this is what I'm learning about this integration of spaces where people who see me will see me from the commercial, they see me from Ferguson, they actually care about me and the news I'm delivering. Right. But let's take a look at this, uh, this one clip. What is the real face of poverty in America today? Follow us on a coast-to-coast, border-to-border journey as we uncover life below the poverty line in more than 70 cities and towns across the nation. Explore photographs, interactive maps, and written essays. Get an in-depth look at the human side of those trapped in our growing underclass and experience an America that's rarely ever seen. Go to msnbc.com slash geographyofpoverty. So I think, again, that shows why, why traditional media is, is still kind of lumbering and slow, um, that there is a real effort to, again, put money and resources. I mean, this costs a lot of money. I mean, we were traveling around the country. It took us like four months to com- 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 complete this entire project. It's been well-received, but everyone from the, the president of the network down has been so enthusiastic about this. Again, but this wasn't just online. We're running commercials. I'm going on Lawrence O'Donnell and that, you know, Al Sharpton's show to talk about this. So there's complete integration of you know, what we call the bridge, bridging the gap between television and the dot-com side. Thanks. If you haven't seen this project, you have to see it. And when you, when you embrace it and you look at it and you look at the role Tremaine plays in it and, and the photographer, but I mean, Tremaine specifically, remember, he was covering, while he was doing that, he was covering breaking news, like, every day um, from, from Ferguson uh, on to, to uh, all of the stories from Ferguson to Charleston. Um, and it was an amazing run of hard work. So I really applaud you, um, not just for being creative digitally, but for doing that really old-school shoe leather on-the-ground reporting. Um, our next panelist is, is Louise Rogue, and I remember when, I've known Louise for a long time, but I remember once I mispronounced her name as Rouge, and I was reminded by her that it's Rogue, and now I call her the aptly named Louise Rogue. She's awesome. She is a fantastic journalist uh, who I've gotten to know in the field, um, as well as you know, on different, different journeys through, through her work now as an editor and being on panels together or partnering on different projects. Um, Louise has been a longtime reporter. Uh, she worked for the LA Times for many years. She covered the Middle East for the LA Times. She did a lot of things, though, presidential election, all kinds of different stuff. But I, I knew her mostly from the Middle East days. Um, she was foreign editor um, at Newsweek and the Daily Beast and, uh, and, and was there to tumultuous time, and, and I think from my perception and dealing with her, 
uh, I always thought of her as someone who steadied the ship there. You know, you, you really, you could feel it that the people I knew in the field who wrote for you kind of thought like, okay, it's chaos, but at least, at least we have Louise we can call. Um, and is now global news editor for Mashable and doing really interesting work. So do you want to introduce your amazing project? Um, yeah, I do. I want to talk a little bit about first about Mashable. I'll make it brief, but just in case you don't know too much about who we are. Um, Mashable has been around for 10 years, was always uh, thought of uh, first as a digital uh, product. Um, we, I always looked, like to talk about our audience. We have an amazing audience. It's something like five, 45 million uniques a month. Um, but what's really interesting about our audience is the demographic. It's mostly 18 to 35-year-olds. Um, it's almost 50-50 men and women, and almost 50-50 in the U.S. and overseas. So a really a great audience um, to tell stories for and, and with, because I, um, one of the things that we're really interested in is shares. And if you go to Mashable, um, you see the on the site, you'll see um, the number of shares. We're very transparent about how... Uh, a story is being shared because we think like if people share a story they're really engaging with that story um, and what we originally were um, um, about and we're still very much about is um, networks and how people connect um, especially through technology so I would also maybe take issue with something Charlie uh, said to begin with which was something about despair and destruction because I actually think I'm not despairing. I'm super bullish. I think this is a great moment. I realize that there's, um, when you talk to the business side of things, it's not always, depending on where you are, it's not always sort of um, as rosy. But I think in terms of storytelling, and I think these three examples we've seen, I just think it's a really, really great moment to be uh, a reader or a consumer of news and storytelling. Like the, the stuff we're seeing, it's just fantastic. Like every day I'm just... I've got my tweet deck open and there I just, I'm just, I sort of get bitter of all the things that I'm not catching because there's so much stuff that my colleagues are doing that I'm just like, God, I want to see this. I want to experience this. And, and I just feel like I'm constantly missing out on all the good stuff that's being done. So I'm not at all in the despair category. I'm, I'm very much in the sort of bullish category. No one here is in the despair <laughs> category. Um, and um, so for this project, um, uh, so the story of ISIS and the rise of ISIS in Syria has been a really obviously complicated and bloody one. And from an editor's perspective, especially from, for, for a news organization like Mashable, where uh, we don't have traditional bureaus so much, we do have some foreign correspondents, one in particular, but um, we don't have traditional bureaus. And I would certainly be really hesitant to send somebody to Syria given how dangerous it's become for uh, for everyone involved, Syrian journalists, uh you know, foreign journalists and so on. Um, but so how do you tell this story? It's going on now for four years uh, and, you know, more than 200,000 people dead, this massive, massive exodus, the biggest refugee crisis since World War II. How, how do you tell this story? How do you get into that story? And especially when you have uh, an audience like ours. Um, so one of the things that we do, we have a, a real-time news team that um, through looking at social networks, they will report from the office. Um, a lot of that is verification, making sure that like the images and the videos and so on are what they purport to be. A lot of that eyewitness content and, and imagery is incredibly important in terms of getting us the truth about what's happening, what's happening on the ground. But not all of it is necessarily particularly compelling. 
Um, I mean, some of it might be, but some of it's bloody, some of it's, you know, because it's often, you know, just regular people just, you know, standing on a rooftop with a, with a cell phone, just, you know, capturing what's going on. So how do you tell the story from inside Syria about um, what's happening? And so um, we had this idea to, to basically take uh, using user-generated content or eyewitness media to transform that um, into an animation um, that basically it's, it's sort of a fully, fully reported animation. Every single frame of that animation uh, is based on a verified photograph or video clip. Every single uh, piece of content inside that, that animation is, is based on sort of reporting. Um, the, the person who sort of tells the story uh, was, a, was an activist who had grown up in, in Raqqa and could tell the story about what happened in Raqqa and how ISIS came in and took over his city. Um, the reporter who worked on this talked to this guy for like maybe 10 hours over several uh, days. We verified his um, account, of course, um, and we used that to tell this story. Uh, we did a storyboard, like as you would any kind of um, Hollywood uh, or, or Pixar movie or whatever. Uh, except that this is, you know, a, a true story. What you're about to see is not the full-length um, animation, though I'd encourage you to go and find it. It's on Mashable. If you Google Mashable on Raqqa uh, and ISIS, you'll find it. It's about, th the, the full-length is about three minutes. Um, this is just uh, the Facebook uh, trailer because we ob obviously uh, needed some kind of teaser. So this is a little bit more compressed. The other thing I should say, and I completely stole uh, an idea from Adam. Adam did an amazing uh, video that I hope they would get to talk about. Um, also concerning ISIS, but we talked about reaching an Arabic speaking audience. And so um, once we'd done this, we had it translated into Arabic made sure that it was a Syrian dialect and the whole thing and uh, published it on YouTube um, and yeah, with the text and everything else in Arabic because it just seems like if you're going to tell these people's story, you should also tell it in their own language. So um, yeah, um, you can have a look. That clip is short. <laughs> that project is amazing. I really commend you on it. It's, it's a, I've covered the Middle East for a long time. And to see a news organization that moves at a really fast clip and has a huge digital audience that is, that is humming online, and to see you stop for a moment and help us all understand um, what is happening in Syria and try to get our arms around it. It's extraordinary. I really encourage you to go and spend time with it and check it out. Thank you. A couple things um, to spare. Um, I agree that, that we're here to talk about the future, but I, I can't avoid the fact that, that sometimes I talk to great journalists, great documentary producers, great people who do long form, and they're looking for outlets, and they're, they're searching, and they're trying to find ways to tell the stories that matter, and get paid for them in a way that they can make a living. And I do hear despair sometimes. And I try to 
to, to help those friends of mine or colleagues who feel that to realize this is a really incredible moment. So I, I share your sense. I just think it is part of the landscape, but tonight is about really looking for that, that, that sweet spot that is opportunity right now. And there's a lot out there. Um, the other thing is danger, the, this notion of safety. There's, it's never been a more perilous time, as Louise shared with you, to, to be a reporter in the field. Um, as Louise pointed out, she's not sending anyone to Syria. Neither are we. In fact, we're really trying to encourage young correspondents to move away uh, from conflict reporting. There's so many important stories to tell that have to do with climate change, a uh, big initiative we're doing that have to do with the economy. Kevin is heading up a series called Generation TBD, Millennials Facing an Uncertain Global Economy. Huge story for us to get right um, and to use this young generation of correspondents to tell the stories of their generation. That's what we do at Ground Truth. I'm gonna share with you a, a short um, journey through a project we've done uh, that I think reflects uh, some of the themes I'd wanna tease out about the kind of work we do, what we're trying to do with storytelling. Um, this project is called, actually it's one back, I think one more back, yeah. This is called Foreverstan. Um, Foreverstan is uh, Afghanistan and the road to ending America's longest war. It's set on the ring road in Afghanistan. And if you just scroll down a little bit, um, you'd, you'd see, like Adam was talking about what they're trying to do, we're trying to integrate the written word with photography, with video, with graphics trying to tell the stories of the handover. We followed one girl's school for three years. Uh, we've done five uh, video, short video segments that tell the story of this girl's school, and we're working toward a feature-length documentary from the head of Ground Truth Films, uh, Beth Murphy, who's an amazing filmmaker. So how do you combine short films with a longer documentary approach? We tried to provide a timeline so you could really get your, your arms around Afghanistan. Uh, we've looked at, at different ways into this story. I'm going to show you a very short clip from the video. And before we get to it, I just want to say, I just told you we're trying to get out of conflict reporting. And this defies that. We're in Afghanistan um, with a young correspondent named Ben Brody. Ben I met about five years ago. And we've been supporting his work ever since. Ben is a veteran. He was on the GI Bill at UMass Amherst when I met him. He was a combat photographer for the, for the Army, uh, seriously trained uh, and traveled with special forces and did combat photography. He really understands the battlefield. He wrote eloquently and beautifully about what he calls a civilian conversion to journalism from his experience as a combat photographer. He is, I think, one of the really important eyes out there on, on conflict, and particularly on Afghanistan. He stayed with this story for years. And in some ways, Foreverstan is a celebration of Ben's years of work. But even with Ben Brody and others, we're really trying to encourage them. There are other stories out there. So with that proviso, I will say, uh, we'll share a quick clip. I'm going to cut it off at a minute so that we can get right into a further conversation. Ring Road, 1,300 miles of highway that circles Afghanistan. 
This road was built by international donors, including the U.S. and the World Bank, with a price tag of more than $3 billion. It's also carried a higher cost. Since the U.S.-led invasion in 2001, hundreds of soldiers and civilians were killed along this highway, the targets of roadside bombs and ambushes by the Taliban. I think we used the one that was pre-buffered. The ring road um, provides we... a metaphor for the U.S. presence here, an effort to link the major cities in a country badly fractured along ethnic lines and through decades of brutality. Rather than suffer the buffering, why don't we end it? Um, this, this, Our pro report. this project is... Um, something I really would invite you to spend some time with. It's um, immersive. We have video, we have five deep photo essays by Ben Brody. All of the still images you saw in that video are by Ben Brody. Um, Brody, I was with him in Afghanistan and he snuck a drone, a, a video drone into Afghanistan and just hearing him talk his way through customs, that alone I will forever be sort of indebted to him as someone who really knows how to tell a story and will do anything to do it. Um, Ben's extraordinary. Please spend some time with his work. Beth Murphy, who did uh, the videography on this, is extraordinary as well. Gene McKenzie, who lives in Kabul um, and is training a young uh, cadre of young Afghan journalists to tell their own stories, did a series of profiles of millennials in Afghanistan who are the future of that country. We're trying to build a training program in Afghanistan where Ben is mentoring one photographer, a young Afghan photographer. Beth is mentoring a young Afghan filmmaker. And Gene Kenzie is mentoring a larger group of writers about how to do essays and tell their own stories. Um, it's, it's the heart of what we do at the Ground Truth Project in terms of inspiring a new generation to tell the stories of their generation. But it's also an example of partnerships. We did this with... Um, we did a half-hour special with WGBH uh, on Memorial Day. We did PBS NewsHour, did a special report featuring this work. PRI The World did a series of radio pieces from the audio we gathered. Um, WGBH Radio locally, we had a couple of local angles to the story that were really interesting. The principal of the girls' school hails from Wellesley, Massachusetts. She's Afghan-American. She, she's from this very suburban town outside of Boston. Um, we really see it as the kind of uh, work we want to do that allows us to be distributive. So we also worked with The Atlantic, um, and we did uh, other sort of partnering here with various online organizations. So it's a real, I think, crystallization of what we're trying to do. So please take a look, and I'd be love to hear your thoughts on it if you haven't seen it already. Um, okay, so I want to get to a couple quick questions here. Um, we're very close to coming to your questions, so I'm going to say we're going to spend do one quick pass through and get to your questions. So, is there a place, Tyler, where people should go to line up for those questions, or just pass a mic around? Okay. But before we do, just get to those questions. I wanted to sort of frame a couple of things. Um, one of the things we wanted to look at today is can online advertising sustain this kind of in-depth reporting that you've seen here? Um, what, are, what are some of the new models that are going to really sustain this kind of work and who's doing it right? 
I'm going to say I think everybody here is doing their best to do it right. We've already talked about that. But I just wanted to get a quick, if you guys could each just give me a quick 30 seconds or 40 seconds even, sort of what's going to sustain this work? Um, and I'll start with you, Louise, because you've, 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 you've been on the, on the sort of executive editing side of this. You've been trying to think these models through. How do we sustain this work? How is Mashable sustaining this work? I mean, specific, specifically for Mashable, um, we have sort of multiple revenue streams. We're also a technology company, uh, which helps. Um, we have developed a very sophisticated algorithm that's kind of, I think of it as a sort of digital crystal ball that allows us to predict the velocity of a given story. It's something we license. Um, we also have events, like there's, there's multiple, it's branded content and so on. Um, the, th the thing that I think surprised me the most, it's, 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 it's something coming from um, maybe foreign reporting and just an assumption about what kind of, now that we have all this data to look at stories and how well they do, and obviously we all track it, you know, how does foreign reporting and, and storytelling from overseas, how, do, how does that stack up? Um, so, for example, the Justin Bieber pieces of this world. And, um, you know, surprisingly, uh, like, I think one of the best uh, thing, been best performing, if you will, but most shared pieces we did last week was, um, it was a photo essay, Swedish photographer who took photograph, and it was several um, news outlets ran it. It was not something that was... Um, that um, he did on assignment first, but he basically took photographs of uh, sleeping refugee children around uh, Europe. It was enormously powerful. Find it online, unmatchable or elsewhere. But I think, I mean, I think like 200,000 people saw it on our site alone, and I know that wow. BuzzFeed did it as well. And so there's this assumption that people don't care about overseas or whatever, and granted our audience is, half of it comes from overseas anyway, but... Um, I, th I think that's a, a wrong assumption, a false assumption. I think um, if people are interested in that content, you could also make money off it, I guess would be my... You know, I was just going to say, your, your journey specifically, you've been at so many different places, you've seen so many different models. What's really working to sustain the kind of work I know that you want to do? If I could answer that, I would be solving <laughs> like the journalism crisis of... 2015, but um, if there maybe there is no crisis. I mean, right now at Fusion, we're still sort of working through our investment money, so we're um, we're playing with a lot of different things. We also have a in-house branded content um, group called Lightworks that creates special, you know, series and um, and video content for us. Um, one thing, though, you know, I've heard every place I've been is that nobody like you feel was foreign reporting, no one will pay for um, or sponsor political content. And I'm, I work um, really, really closely with our sales, our growing sales team, and the people at ABC who are also trying to sell our work. Um, you know, we've come up with like a very friendly slate of a lot of our elections coverage. It's positive. It's optimistic. We are also like targeting the under 35 demographic. We are diverse. Like our staff is diverse. We are creating content for the, for the new American majority, you know, and that to us, like that's who everybody tells you that they want to reach. And I think when we're thinking about special projects, um, you know, from an editorial perspective, it's not like 
crafting something that we know they're going to want to sell. It's that a lot of things that we're coming up with, um, you know, there are creative ways to think about sponsoring them, going to different sponsors. And we small sponsors are okay too. You know, our big revenue stream is cable still. I mean, we're not in New York. You're probably like, I can't get Fusion. We're not on Comcast. We're not on Time Warner. That is not good for us. But we're hoping to get, you know, picked up in two years. And we're in 40 million homes. And that is a significant revenue stream for a pretty small company that started two and a half years ago. So in that way, we're, we've got some of that traditional support coming in, but we're trying to experiment digitally to figure it out. Okay. Adam, I was going to shift the question a tiny bit for you, because I, I want you to talk a little bit about craft. I think I'd love to hear your thoughts on business models, but I'm more interested in you as a wait, practitioner. Wait, wait, wait. I, I want to hear Adam on business models. I want to hear the New York Times business models, oh, too. I, 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 if I may, <laughs> I think um, if you feel equipped to talk about it, dive in. But I, I, I also want to just say we have a chance to see another video clip um, and, and to hear a little bit about crash from you. And what I would ask is, are you getting the resources you need to do the kind of work that matters from this big enterprise, the New York Times? Well, how about I try to answer both of them with the same answer? <laughs> I like That'd it. That'd be amazing. You, that would be amazing. Um, so the bottom of the internet is a really crowded place. And our response to that was to erect a paywall a few years ago, a pay model. And that has worked really well for us. We now have more than 2 million subscribers. So I think of the Times as a, um, as a subscription journalism company. And I don't think anyone has figured it out yet, but there are things that are working for different places. And um, this is working for us. Um, and there are other models that are working for, um, for other newsrooms. And then the question becomes you know, what do you do off platform where it's a very crowded place? And that's a place where our relationship with potential new subscribers begins. And it's also a place to have the volume of journalistic impact, to have a public voice, which is also a part of our mission and purpose. So trying to do both of those things really well is sort of, I think, our challenge in the next in the next few years, not to mention as an announcement went out last week to, um, to double revenue with um, international expansion, among other things. So that leads me to your question, which is um, resources. And because this subscription company is working well for us, um, you know, we used to be sheepish about this stuff, but uh, I'm proud to say that last year... Um, we had uh, reporters in 179 countries and took 4,500 flights to do that original reporting. And I am very optimistic because the original reporting that I'm doing, for example, two months ago, I was in the Nuba Mountains in Sudan um, watching Anatovs drop bombs on innocent people, uh, civilians living in grass huts. Um, you know, that I can reach more people with that kind of journalism than any previous generation of journalists. That excites me tremendously. And we're doing that, as you alluded to, um, not only through our subscription model, but also off-platform in other languages um, and pushing our international coverage out quite aggressively, um, not only in other languages, but in, in other time zones and on other distribution platforms 
that uh, we probably didn't use uh, that much in the past. So that, that makes me quite hopeful. And that's really exciting when I'm out in the story, knowing that a piece that I do that's critical uh, of the Angolan government, I spent a few weeks in Angola, um, is then pushed out in Portuguese and makes it an audio version, makes it um, in Portuguese uh, in rural areas in Angola for people to hear who uh, live in a country with no free press. So, but I do worry that um, there is quite a bit of creative disrupting storytelling mm -hmm. and a diminishing amount of original reporting. And I think it's really important to break those, those two things down. I think both are really important. Everyone is scrambling and succeeding at innovative storytelling, but most of that is not original reporting. So that is what we're, that's what we're doing. And our newsroom today is larger than it ever has been. Can I, can I just, I mean, one of the things that was really uh, impressive, I think it was last week, was when the foreign editor of the New York Times, they, they did a data visualization essentially of where they have uh, reporters around the world and where Times reporters have been in the past year. And it was bloody impressive. I mean, and you, you do do that better than anyone. But I also think like, we're not necessarily in competition. You know, and, and I, I want to say one thing more and I hope we can come back to it in terms of reporting. There's also different ways of reporting, like as a former foreign reporter, like I really appreciate boots on the ground and all that. But there's also ways of reporting using social networks where you get to eyewitnesses, like there's a whole disruption happening there in terms yeah. of UTC and eyewitnesses that I think is just a different way at the story, but not necessarily less authentic and maybe perhaps you know, you can get to the story quicker and maybe in, in, certain, in certain ways, more authentic ways. Right. You mentioned verification in your Raqqa story. I mean, that's a new skill that a previous generation of foreign correspondents didn't have, and it's a way to report as well. So, so by verification, you mean to take user-generated content or, or things that you're finding on the web and then being able to study them and see, is this real? Is this really grounded? I think that is a really interesting skill set for a newsroom I mean, I mean, to have that's right like, now. In our newsroom, that's the most important skill set. Right. Like, if, and the news team. That is definitely what we, you know. All right, I want to hear from Tremaine, and then we're going to come to your questions right after that. But Tremaine, you know, you worked at the New York Times for a while. You, you guys were colleagues. You worked in Philly at the at, uh, Philadelphia Daily News. Um, you also worked at the Times-Picayune. I know for a fact the Times-Picayune has struggled greatly financially. Um, what, what, as a writer, as someone who's, who's experimenting with all these different things, you're in, a, you're in a great spot now, but how do you feel about the resources? Are they there for you to do the work you want to do? I think now the resources are there. I mean, at NBC, there's kind of a river of money running under it, um, and that is different than being in newsrooms where it was, it was a lot of doom and gloom because there were cuts all the time. Here, where now I'm a national reporter and I'm going over the place, spending a lot of money. Um, but I think in that sense of doom and gloom, I always tell you know, young journalists, you know, stay low and keep firing. So despite what else is going on, you know, tell your stories, get your clips. Don't feed into, sometimes there are some people who are, have negative energy in the newsroom, and it's terrible, and people are getting, and it legitimately is kind of scary sometimes when people are losing their jobs, but again, you stay low and you keep firing, right. and you keep pushing and telling these stories that matter, because for a lot of us, we, you know, we did it for free. Or we did it for nothing. And so now that there are some perks in the game, it sweetens it, but we should still have that, that hunger. But again, I think now, even um, though there are a lot of places that are struggling, I know that for NBC and MSNBC.com and MSNBC, it's important to be there in those places where the people are. And because so much of TV is about branding so that they trust you, 
Um, I saw on social media a lot just this past weekend where, you know, a bunch of people are circulating this kind of petition, you know, boycott BT, boycott CNN. And they weren't at the Million Man March. No, one, it was a blackout. They covered Ferguson. So I have to say, I wrote a story. I, we did a photo essay. I did a video package and I was live all day long. So, but, the, but we were the only ones really doing that in C-SPAN, right? right? So it's important for us to continue to be there. And yeah. so I think the, the, the big payoff is making sure that you're putting the resources in the right places, but that um, we're also not scared to spend the money. And I don't think um, you know, our organization is. Well, thanks for your work. It's been, it's been amazing to watch you have this run and staying low and keeping firing because it's been amazing work. It is a moment of creativity. It's a moment to celebrate. Um, and that's what tonight was all about. So thank you very much for coming. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org. 